My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. I want to welcome you to worship this morning. For those of you who are joining with us online, I want to say hello to you as well. We're glad that you're with us today as we begin a new sermon series called Recover. And I'll say more about that in just a moment. Our scripture reading this morning comes to us from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. But before we read that, I want to say a word about this scripture. And I'll be reading from a different translation than you have in the pews before you. Uh, My translation will be from the Common English Bible. And you'll see those words on the screens when it's time to read those words. When Paul writes the church in Rome, he's writing a letter to a church that is uh, experiencing a uniquely challenging form of diversity. If you know your Roman church history, uh, in the 40s, and I mean the original 40s, not the 1940s, but 40 CE, there was this emperor named Claudius, and In his anti-Semitism, he expelled the Jews from Rome and sent them, uh, for the most part, back to their homeland of Israel, and many of them resided in Jerusalem, the surrounding areas. And then when Claudius died about 10 years later, the new emperor took over, and uh, the Jewish people were invited back into the city. During this time, the Christian church was developing and growing in the city of Rome, but without any Jewish Christians present. And at the same time, the Jews who had been expelled from Rome were living in Israel and in Jerusalem, the surrounding areas, and they were growing in their Christian faith as Jewish people, born out of their Jewish tradition in a very Jewish way and heritage. And so when they come back to Rome and they find the local Methodist church, right, and they find the local Christian community in Rome as Jewish Christians, they walk in and they see a room full of sinners, Gentiles not abiding by traditional Jewish customs that they still held to as Jewish Christians, eating pork, not abiding by a specific Sabbath, maybe no Sabbath at all. And so conflict arises because the Jewish peoples in the Christian community of Rome, they said, how can you possibly consider yourself Christian without understanding the Jewish heritage? How can you consider yourself a follower of Jesus without also following the law? And the Gentile Christians said, we've been doing just fine by ourselves for a while. We're not sure why we need any of you. This feels like church, doesn't it? And so Paul writes a pastoral letter, and in it he develops this masterful theology that we take for granted today, but he is developing in some ways for the very first time. And for the first several chapters, he's got a running theme, and it all has to do with sin. I'll say more about that in a moment. But it's in chapter 7, the scripture we're about to read, where Paul is about to make a turn and introduce this Roman church to the power, the real power that we find in Christ, a unifying power, a humbling power. And so with all of that in mind, we bring ourselves to Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. I invite you to rise as you are able for a reading of God's word this morning. You'll see these words on the screens. Paul says, I don't know what I'm doing because I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the thing that I hate. But if I'm doing the thing that I don't want to do, I'm agreeing that the law is right. But now I'm not the one doing it anymore. Instead, it's sin that lives in me. I know that good doesn't live in me, is, uh, uh, that is inside my body. 
The desire to do good is inside of me, but I can't do it. I don't do the good that I want to do, but I do the evil that I don't want to do. But if I do the very thing that I don't want to do, then I'm not the one doing it anymore. Instead, it is sin that lives in me that is doing it. So I find that, as a rule, when I want to do what is good, evil is right there with me. I gladly agree with the law on the inside, but I see a different law at work in my body. It wages a war against the law of my mind and takes me prisoner with the law of sin that is in my body. I'm a miserable human being. Who will deliver me from this dead corpse? Thank God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I'm a slave to God's law in my mind, but I'm a slave to sin's law in my body. The word of God for the people of God. Let us say, thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the words of your servant Paul this morning. We give you thanks for his ability to articulate the human condition. God, as we consider your words for us today, prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your grace. Allow these words to leap off of the pages of our Bibles, off of the screens, into our hearts, that they might change the way that we live. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray and we say, Amen. Today we begin a new sermon series perfect for the Easter season, a season of resurrection and of healing, a series born out of the story of the people called Lover's Lane as we reflect this year on 75 years of ministry. The series is called Recover, Life's Mountains Meet God's Grace, and over the course of the next seven weeks, we will walk through the 12 steps that are associated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We'll be walking through these 12 steps as a church community, and we'll be considering how Scripture reveals God's desire for recovery in the life of God's people. Lover's Lane has a proud history of ministry with persons seeking recovery from addiction dating all the way back to the 1940s with Pastor Tom Shipp when those people were not always welcome in churches. This work of Lover's Lane culminated in Dr. Benton's opening of the Center for Spiritual Development, the house across the street which is home to the largest traditional 12-step ministry in the country, with almost 100 groups meeting there weekly for a myriad of addiction, almost tens of thousands of people walking through those doors every single year. More recently, we've become a home to a celebrate recovery ministry led by our own from grief or divorce or other traumatic life events. Put simply, Lover's Lane has long been in the recovery business. I imagine that many of us in the room today may be here because of the recovery work of this church. And for that, I give thanks to God. Amen? Amen. And so we uplift that work and the theology behind it these next several weeks in hopes that we can all share in the gift of recovery personally this Easter season. Today we begin by looking at the first two steps. But before we can begin, you may be thinking to yourself, Scott, I'm not in recovery, I don't attend AA, 
I'm not an addict. What does this have to do with me? In the letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul is addressing a church that has gotten confused on the subject of sin. It's the same confusion that Jesus addresses when he finds a woman surrounded by an angry mob about to stone her to death. When he offers that crowd these convicting words, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. In the same way, Paul tells the Romans earlier in chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have a tendency to want to rank ourselves based on our sinfulness or perceived lack thereof. I know I'm not perfect, we might say, but at least I'm not like that. I've been guilty of thinking this, have you? The problem is the sins that we tend to shine a spotlight on are the ones that we can point our finger at and say, look at them, look at those sinners. And maybe we like feeling superior. Maybe it makes us feel better to believe that we're better than that. The problem is we're not that comfortable addressing sin, not in the broader, deeper sense. We like like to talk about those people or those sins, I think, to keep the attention off ourselves and the sins we'd rather ignore. Amen? That was a quieter response. In his book titled Breathing Underwater, Father Richard Rohr, a celebrated Catholic priest and teacher, he writes theologically about the 12 steps, and I commend it to your reading, Breathing Underwater. In this book, he says this, Christians are usually sincere and well-intentioned people until you get to any real issues of ego, control, money, pleasure, and security then they tend to be pretty much like everybody else. He continues by saying, we're often given a bogus version of the gospel, some fast food religion without any deep transformation of the self, and the result has been the spiritual disaster of historically Christian countries that tend to be as consumer-oriented, proud, warlike, racist, class-conscious, and addictive as everybody else and often more so, I'm afraid. Richard Rohr's point is simple. He's saying what Paul says in Romans chapter 3 and what Jesus said long before that, we are all in need of recovery. The question is not whether or not you are in need of recovery. The question is from what are you in need of recovery? So I invite you, to fully engage in the 12 steps with us, knowing full well that we all have, as they say, our own hurts, habits, and hang-ups, and that in this Easter season, the ground around the empty cross and the floor of the empty tomb are indeed level. So church, I must confess, I've not always been the clean-cut pastor that you see before you today. Stan has worked really hard to get me where I am. In fact, I want to show you a picture of me when I was a college student at the University of North Texas. Let's see it on the screens. Now, if you can't see the image, but you can hear the laughter, what you're looking at is a picture of me with shoulder-length, ringlet, curly hair. 
And no, my hair is not curly any longer. In fact, I wish I had a bit more of it these days. Those teenage young adult hormones are a heck of a thing, aren't they? Along with my hair, my face is covered in a wide smile. And I think I'd been at a pool party for the Denton Wesley Foundation, the Methodist campus ministry at UNT. Behind that big smile, though, was a young man fighting a losing battle. Sometime in the midst of my second year at UNT, I knew something was wrong. One day I woke up, and for the life of me, I could not summon the courage or the energy to get out of bed. The thought of going outside my private dorm room and going to class or doing anything at all seemed impossible. And so I stayed. I didn't go to class. I didn't leave my room for a week. No classes, no laundry, no parties, no friends, no contact with anyone really. Just laying in bed wondering what in the world was wrong with me. What I didn't know at the time was that I was suffering from my first really bad episode of major depressive disorder. But I didn't know that. I just thought I was a complete failure, a total loser. And I felt powerless, powerless to do anything about it. The first step in the 12 steps is this. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Do you know what it's like to admit that you are powerless over something that is destroying your life in ways big or small? Do you know that feeling? I do. I know what it's like to think, how will I ever conquer this? This mountain I'm facing is just too big to climb. Paul describes our powerlessness over our own brokenness in this way. He says, I don't know what I'm doing because I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the thing that I hate. It's so frustrating. He says, so I find that as a rule, when I want to do what is good, evil is right there with me. I gladly agree with the law on the inside, but I see a different law at work in my body. It wages a war against the law of my mind and takes me prisoner with the law of sin that is in my body. I love the way that the message translation by the late Eugene Peterson puts it. He, he, he puts this passage this way. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? The first step is to arrive at the same place as Paul in his letter to the church in Rome. I realize I don't have what it takes. I realize I don't have what it takes. That can be a difficult or even painful realization in a culture like ours that celebrates independence and individual effort. We venerate powerful people who build themselves up out of nothing, but the life of faith compels us to see ourselves in a different way. We have to reckon with our own powerlessness. We have to reckon 
with our own powerlessness. For many of us, myself included, this powerlessness is made abundantly clear through the brokenness we experience in our own lives, but we can also do an impeccable job of masking our own powerlessness behind the thin veneer of having it all together. Can't we, church? How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. The smiles we wear on our faces... And the smiles we post on our Facebooks don't always tell the full story, do they? Breaking the routine of denial is necessary because it is only through getting real with who we are and how we are broken that real healing can begin. Before we can embrace a savior church, we have to know we need saving. I'm gonna say that again. Before we can embrace a savior church, We have to know we need saving. Amen? The church ought to be a place where this kind of authenticity can be found and shared. I'm so thankful for the way in which Tom Shipp laid a foundation for authenticity at this church 75 years ago. I'm so thankful for the way that we have lived into a church that can keep it real. Amen? And I hope that over the next several weeks, my prayer is that we could begin to to recommit ourselves to opening up with one another about how everything in our lives may not actually be okay. Because when we give voice to our own powerlessness, we will meet the power of God. Step two says this. We came to believe that a power, capital P, that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. With the admission that we are simply not enough on our own, that we are powerless to conquer our brokenness in and of ourselves, comes the openness to receive help from a higher power, a power whom we know and identify here as God in Christ. As Paul says, I'm a miserable human being. Has anyone ever felt miserable before? Say amen, somebody. I'm a miserable human being. Who will deliver me from this dead corpse? And then he gives us the answer straight away. Thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, it's all well and good to say that God's power can rescue us, but how does God's power work in our lives? Is it as simple as muttering a prayer and wishing away the sin and the brokenness? I wish it was. But that's not how I've seen it work in my own life. Now, I believe that God has incredible power over sin and and that my walk of faith can help to reduce my ego or free me from my slavery to money or encourage me to be a more compassionate human being. Trust me, God has done God's work on my soul, among many other things. But, But I have heard too many preachers in my life proclaiming the power God has over addiction and mental health in an unhealthy way. And I want to speak to that for a moment this morning, church. First, I believe that God's power works through other people. When I found myself stuck in my room for a week, I summoned up enough courage for a phone call that Friday afternoon, and I called my mom to let her know what was going on, that I was scared, that I wasn't sure what to do. Now, I believe the power of God is made real in relationship, in moments of vulnerability, in the simple act of asking another person for help. 
And that can feel like vinegar in your lips, doesn't it? Sometimes the higher power we seek is found through the love and concern of a friend or a family member. And church, when we surround ourselves with others who know the path that we are on, it confronts the evil of loneliness that can so easily overwhelm us. Second, I believe that God's power works through trained professionals. Therapy is a regular part of my life, not just as a response to a crisis, but as a regular check-in to keep myself healthy and accountable to someone who knows exactly what it is I'm experiencing and how best to help. I am so thankful to be living in an age when therapy is increasingly destigmatized, and I praise God for the women and men who've committed their lives to this work. Third, I believe God's power can work through medication. I know public opinions vary on this subject. But when I found myself in a moment of crisis, medication was a means of grace for helping me get my life back on track. For some, it's a regular part of maintaining their health. And for others like me, it was necessary only for a season. My point is this. While I wish that all of our brokenness could be solved through prayer and fasting and scripture and worship, and trust me, a whole lot of sin can be solved through prayer and fasting and scripture and worship, I can see God's power at work in the myriad of ways God surrounds us with people who can usher us into healing and wholeness. You are not alone. Don't walk this life alone. Because no one desires healing and wholeness for you more than God. Hear me. No one desires healing and wholeness for you more than God. Here's the really good news, church. In all of God's glory... In all of God's majesty, in all of God's power, even as God sits high on his throne as our highest power, God always sees us as worthy. Always sees you as worthy. When we meet our sin face to face, when we feel the consequences of our own brokenness, trust me, I know we can feel like failures, we can feel like losers, we can feel like a total waste of space, but God never sees us that way. Not God. God doesn't look at you and think, gosh, I can't believe I died on the cross for them. God sees us and says, this is exactly why I died on the cross for you. This is exactly why I sacrificed myself for you. This is exactly why I came to be in relationship with you. Because this, your brokenness, your sin, your hurts, your habits, your hangups, I know you can't do this alone. The last thing I want you to do is suffer The last thing I want you to do is not find joy in this life. The last thing I want you to do, beloved child, is to think that this is all life has to offer. Another quote from Richard Rohr in his book, Breathing Underwater. God does not love us if we change. God loves us so that we can change. God does not love us if we change. God loves us so that we can change. And God's got a whole lot of power, church. 
It was the power of God's love that conquered the cross. It was the power of God's love that conquered the grave. It's the power of God's love that can change us if we let it. It's the power of asking for help. The power of vulnerability. The power of simply getting real and saying, I'm not okay. It's true. We are powerless to conquer sin. We are powerless to heal ourselves. But church, do I need to remind you, it is still Easter season. And we powerless people have a powerful God. Amen.